<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're you, of course, and you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories. Yay, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Uh, this is episode five of season two, so we're halfway through the through the season. And you can find all of our episodes on nobodyreadshortstories.com. So tonight's story is gonna run about 38 minutes. And we just wanna let everybody know that um, tonight's story contains explicit language regarding sexual assault, which may be triggering for some. So without further ado, here is Carrie Newell reading her short story, The Awakening. The Awakening, part one. I'm lying on the ground, staring up at the streetlight. The dim glow of it reflects off the wet bricks of the buildings on either side of me. The rain stopped falling 20 minutes ago, maybe longer. My head hurts a bit and I'm not sure I haven't lost time. I wonder what made me lay on the ground as I look at the starburst reflections, it seems to make sense. The city is so often gray and dirty. If a moment of beauty strikes you, you ought to stop. It's nearly a civic duty. The sounds of the city have faded in the background. It's quieter than night normally is. Soft and muffled, just a distant hum reminding me of where I am but it's not a presence in my life, not for this brief span of time. I'm vaguely aware that my body is rocking back and forth, like a child lying on her back, rocking herself with her heels. This movement has always been comforting, but it's confusing. I'm unaware of my heels propelling me even ever so slightly through space. A faintly musky odor drifts to me through the night air. A tinge of alcohol arrives on its heels. And I'm slightly aware that it might be a good idea to stand up and get out of this alley. I bend my knees, plant my feet on the ground and try to sit up. But I can't seem to move. My body is heavy, my chest compressed, and the rocking doesn't stop. The smell grows stronger. The side of my head is throbbing, the pulse of life forcing its way through my veins. The bricks don't appear magically wet anymore, but my cheeks do. I can't remember laying down and a rhythmic breathing is coming to me from above. I really need to get up. I push harder and try to move my arm. Weakly, I turn my head and see the problem, a hand, a large hand is wrapped around my wrist, grinding it deeply into the pavement. 
I'm aware of the stinging road rash forming on the back of each forearm. There's a harsh scratching sound grating against my brain. I cringe, crane my head. Then I see it in his hand. His fingers are wrapped around my wrist, but also loosely around the black metal butt of a gun. Scrape, scrape, scrape. It grinds into the ground in tempo. The gun, glinting in the streetlight, pushes painfully into my wrist. The gun, glistening wetly, eerily reminiscent of the wet on my face. The gun, grinding into the ground, grinding into my wrist, is tinted red. The gun gliding in and out of sight. And I realize my throbbing temple, my sticky wet face, my blood on the gun. I didn't lay down. I was put down. The rocking continues. The sting of road rash emerging on the back of my legs. I should be freaking out, trying to think I'm paralyzed. And I realized he hasn't noticed I'm here, that I'm back, I mean, awake. I should struggle, should at least move, but my body doesn't seem to agree with me. The stars around the lights are fading more and more as my awareness comes back. I'm hyper-present, but I can't think of what to do. Fuck, 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 fuck. I try to scream, but it comes out a hoarse croak and my throat hurts tremendously. I wonder if his hands wrapped around my neck too at some point. I'm dead, I think. Oh, fuck, I'm dead. He thinks I'm dead or I am dead and I'm watching this happen. Oh God, no. No, 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 no. My head is screaming and I can tell my wrists are bleeding. I'm bleeding and I can feel it now. Feel him moving inside of me and it hurts. My legs won't move. I'm dead. I must be. But I blink. I blink. And I think there are tears in my eyes and dead people don't blink. They don't, they never blink. Dead people don't blink. I'm not dead and he's moving in me, on me, filling my nose with his stench and the sickly sweet smell of alcohol and the musk that will never leave my mind. And I think, no. Not again, not ever again, never. And I want to scream out again. I want to scream, but as he moves, as the gun scrapes against the ground, I think better of it. He thinks I'm dead or unconscious. It doesn't matter. And there is a gun right there, 
right there. And I'm thinking this and the gun is scraping, scraping the ground. And I'm trying so hard to figure out how, how to get that fucking gun. And suddenly, horribly, it comes to me and I move. I rock my hips. I move them barely as if in a dream. I'm hoping I'm moving slowly enough that he won't notice, but quickly enough that his body will. I move my hips, eyes locked on the gun, and I think and clench the muscles in my vagina. They hurt, pushed, pulled and bruised, but I clench them and he begins to move faster. The grip of his hand begins to loosen on both my wrist and the gun. He begins to arch his back further and further, face contorted, burnt into my mind, burnt into me. But the gun is also sliding out of his hand and his fingers release my arm. It falls to the ground, a beautiful clatter, and my arm is free. I stretch my fingers out and the road rash burns and my fingers are wrapping around the gun and I am hoping with everything he can't feel me move. I still feel him inside me as I grasp the handle and point at him and he moans and I pull the trigger. Bang! Dissonance, crashing, bouncing off brick walls, slamming into my eardrums over and over again. Pain, sudden, in my elbow, a weight, a heavy thud on my body, the thud of him on me and in me, in me and on me. He is flaccid and laying on me, crumpled on me, in me. My face is wet, dripping wet. There's no thought. I don't know where the bullet went. I'm afraid to move. Fuck, he had to hear the gun. It's still ringing in my head, singing in my head. I'm panicked, my head ringing from the pain at my temple and the shot rang out and it dawns on me I hit him. I pulled the trigger and the bullet hit him. I want to laugh. I want to sing out. I hit you, you fuck. I got you. I got you. And this is running, screaming, singing through my head as I try to move again. But the stars return. No, I think. No. But I have no power as I feel my body sag to the ground under the force of my own exertion. Part two, inside. My hands buzz electric from the shockwave sent out by the gun blast. My shoulders thrust hard into the ground, hurt, and my vibrations continue to race through me. I become aware of fresh spatter on my face. I taste the chrome of you in my mouth because the wet of your life hit my lips and I licked them not with thought, without thought.
devoid of thought. As my ears continued to ring, I licked my lips because that's what you do when something wet hits them. Almost confused, I licked them again to be sure, and then again. Now, because I want to remember the taste of your blood. I realize I'm talking to you in my head. I wonder if that could be a problem. Then I just killed a man, I think. I imagine I'm crying and laughing, but I can't tell. The world has gone silent. There's no sound in my head, but something flits at the edges. A flutter, a buzz, butterfly wings, or a swarm of bees, and I'm drinking the sweet nectar of your death from my lips. That's it. Hummingbirds. I hear a swarm of hummingbirds. The bullet I gave to you sings like wings in my ears. This soon-to-be-ever-present moment is still caught bouncing through my head and body. It is impossible to recall. Already, I'm forgetting, and I'm still in it. God, I want to remember killing him. You. Killing you. And suddenly, someone is pulling your body off mine. And I think... Maybe that is why my chest hurts so badly. The full weight of you crumpled on me, instantly spent when the bullet hit your head. I wonder briefly if a man on the verge comes when he dies. The weight on my chest lessens slightly, but my shoulders really do ache. And already I know I will have an enormous bruise on my right shoulder blade. And suddenly I am proud of that bruise. The mark that will show the world that I killed you. And instantly I'm considering getting a tattoo of your death on my body. And the tear stains make sense to me. They aren't tears at all. They are little drops of blood people paint on their faces to say to the world, I am strong enough. They tell people their tears because until you're there, you wouldn't understand. And once you've been there, you'd never need to ask. Within a week, I will have this mark on my shoulder blade. I will mark your death and this, my rebirth, with a tiny little fuck you. I think those murderers, those tear-stained men and women, might not be all bad. Some of them, anyway, may have had a very good reason. And if I go to jail for this, in this oh-so-fucked-up world, if I go to jail for this, I'm getting that too under my right eye. But in red or pink, to show the world but also to have it stand out as a bit of color to remember a night I otherwise would have hoped would gray and fade almost instantly. I want this soon to be ever present moment to be in technicolor. The wings keep flapping in my head, a hiss, 
a buzz. Someone pulls the burden of your body off me. A man looks down, his mouth forming words I can't hear through these church bells at mass, through the bullet's lasting echo. Can you talk? Can you say something? The sound drifts to me through those high holy bells and I smile. I smile because his questions show I'm not laughing and I'm not crying. I am thinking completely rationally for the first time in a long time. And it feels fucking great. Part three, the one who stopped. The sirens echo between the buildings, drawn closer. The man that pulled you off me says, I saw it. I mean, not all of it, but I saw it. He's reaching now, grabbing my forearm for grip. His fingers lock around the road burn and I wince. And I grab his arm back and he helps pull me to my feet. The sticky goo of you drips down my leg and I have my answer. I must be making a face because he apologizes profusely. If I thought my voice would work, I'd say, it's okay. I'd tell him, I know it's not his fault. I'd say something. He looks so small and helpless standing there. The sirens are on top of us now, removing the need to speak, but I smile. I don't have the forethought to realize the blood dripping down my face probably turns this gesture into a ghoulish reminder. Guns are pointed at us and he is whisked away from me. His explanation disappears into the night. The gun I didn't realize I was still holding is taken from my hand. I look down, watching it leave, not wanting it to go. The absence of its weight points out how heavy it was. I didn't know what to do, I hear. He was still on her, so I pulled him off. I, I didn't know he, he was, it's, it's a crime scene, but he was laying there and I didn't, I thought she was dead, but then she moved, she moved and the cop leads him further away toward a cruiser. I look up from my gun hand, my hand that held the gun, and he looks back at me. Our eyes lock for a moment. I'm calm looking at this man, the man who stopped. I know he didn't have to. In most cases, it would have been in his best interest not to. When we break eye contact, he turns around and walk silently with the officer to the car. I wonder if he's okay. If this man, the man who stopped, will ever be okay again. Part four, outside. I drift into an ambulance where two EMTs check the gash on my temple and assess as if I'm not here. Her hair is in a tight bun. He has a military-esque buzz cut and won't look at me. All in all, I'm not in bad shape, he reassures me. 
his eyes never lift from his tasks. I think about your blood mixing with mine, his blood. You are not in my head. I won't have this conversation with you and what that could mean. I think about that man spilling himself inside of me and croak. Morning after, I need the, shh, yes, don't talk. You don't take birth control? The woman asks. She raises a flashlight, looking in both my eyes. I shake my head no, but it barely moves. I'm annoyed that her partner, military man, will get away without seeing me. I exist, goddammit. I still exist. My eyes are blue, I say. And he's taken off guard and looks at me. He looks at me for an eternity. They're green, he says. Thanks, I whisper. For what? For seeing me. I'm locked onto a stretcher and we race through the streets faster than my injuries warrant. The woman's hands lightly press on my neck and the sting makes me swallow. And the swallow makes me stop breathing. And I know I was right. At some point, his hands were around my throat. In the hospital, the fluorescent buzz blends with the buzz still ringing in my ears. I can see the harsh yellow pulsing against the sterile walls. It puts me in a kind of trance. I'm out of my body, watching myself. It's interesting. Here, I disassociate. Here, I want to disappear. They ask me question after question, and I find myself thinking in the past tense, not about the rape, that's present, not about shooting you, him, that's present, but about this, this moment, about each question. I want this to be over, this room, these eyes, this, asked and answered, asked and answered. Inside these lifeless walls is where I tell my story. I tell it quietly because I can barely speak. I write it because they need it in writing. I sign a statement because they need it proved. All the while, they apologize. They whisper, walking past my room, but I hear them. The ringing persists, but their voices cut through it, saccharine or accusing, relieved or a studied neutral. This is a lot they know. They are so sorry, but it is important to get the statement as soon as possible for a conviction. And I'm confused. I saw them pull the black tarp over his body. I looked down at my hand, the fabled gun hand. Every cell in it teems with life, full of import. I shot him, I say. The nurse looks at me blankly, then 
comprehension dons. Sorry, yes, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very important we get the details as soon as possible to piece together what happened. I'm crushed. This doesn't need piecing together. In a white room, I do a rape kit. In a white room, I'm handed the little white pill I keep requesting. In a white room, I answer questions without drugs so my statement is clear. In a white room, they draw my blood and I wonder if I have to be tested again in six months. In a white room, they clean my cuts. In a white room, the nurses, all women, look at me with big sorry eyes or no expression at all. In a white room, they tell me I have a concussion from when the butt of the gun was smashed into my temple and not to sleep. In a white room, I let myself drift off long after the staff has turned down the lights, long after the rounds are cut in half, long after the weight in my hand has dissipated, I fall asleep and wake up the next morning to be taken to the police station where I get to tell my story again and again and again. Part five. Beginnings. There shouldn't be any charges pressed, so feel free to go about your life as before, Detective Johnson states. His name makes me laugh. The universe making a cruel joke about my trauma. But I don't mind. When I snicker at Detective Johnson, I'll be handling your case. He stares at me, unamused or unaware of the cosmic comedy before removing his extended hand. That said, don't leave town for a few days. If you do have any upcoming trips, please contact us first. Do you have any? He asks. Any what? Upcoming trips. I was going to go on a sexcation, I say, but I think I'll be canceling that. He hates me everything about me. He doesn't know how to deal with my sadistic snark. No, really. I thought it'd be fun. Men do it. Why not? Across the room, a girl weeps into her hands. His eyes drift to her. And when his eyes return to me, I feel them pleading with me to cry. Break down. Let me comfort you. I can't handle you being strong. I stare at him, harsh and unrelenting. Fuck you and your comfort. This is my unraveling. I will handle my rape and murder my own way. Thank you kindly. I wonder, do I call it a murder? Did I murder him? It was self-defense, but let's be honest. I failed at the defense part. The only part I succeeded in was the never again part. Detective Johnson rubs his temples absentmindedly. 
and jars me from my thoughts. Just let me know if you leave, he says. And I do leave. I leave the station. I'm wearing secondhand jeans and a plain t-shirt. They gave me a sports bra to put on underneath, but it and the corresponding underwear are balled up in my back pocket. I'm not putting on someone else's underwear. I won't. And somehow, every time the nurse said, the underwear is new, I believed her less. My pussy hurts. The jeans hurt against it. So I have a long section of folded up toilet paper wedged in my pants. Without underwear to hold the MacGyver style pad in place, it shifts and my left lip rubs against a seam. Happy Tuesday. I wonder for the first time where my phone is, but I have no desire to walk back into the station and ask. I have even less desire to talk to anyone. Hi, my pussy hurts and I killed a man. Have a nice day. Ahead, I see the bus stop. It lists three options. The 352, the 43, and the 85. I don't know where any of them go. Detective Johnson offered me a lift. His face was awash with relief when I asked if I was allowed to get my own ride. He pointed out a phone and when I looked back to see if I needed to pick up the receiver to pretend to call someone, he had already turned to other tasks. I never touched the phone. I walked out into the blinding sunlight and soaked in the moment. The smell of hot asphalt wafting up to me, my first moment in the sun as a killer. Cunt killer. Killer cunt. I'm a different person than I was yesterday. I breathe in the heat of the day, hummingbird wings whispering in my ears. I am at peace. I look at the bus stop, then at the empty asphalt stretching before me. The openness is infinitely more inviting. So, with the sun beating down on me, and my jeans chafing my lips, I walk. <sighs> Hi. 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 Great read, Carrie. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> yeah, I needed a it needed a little bit of a pause after that. It's it's such a heavy story, but a beautiful one. It's very rough, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so I think we're gonna, um, Jeremy and I are going to um, yes. do a little cranky talk. So let's bring cranky out for those of you who are uh, watching. Um, I'm in a different locale tonight, so you'll see that Cranky isn't in a different locale. And don't um, worry, Carrie's waiting in the green room. We just wanna gossip a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we want to, we want to gossip a little bit without Carrie staring at us. Um, so we put her in the green room. <laughs> and so let's start 
Cranky's movement. All right. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm sure our listeners and our watchers can tell it's a very powerful story for us to to listen to and for Carrie to read. Um, Jeremy, what was what was like what was the thing about this story that really made you want us to have it on the show? It made me feel things from a perspective that I like living my life, I would never have this perspective. So it feels gross and it's supposed to feel gross. So like if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, I don't feel so good. Great, because that's that's what the author intended. So I think this is a very effective piece. I think this is the first kind of piece like this that we've had on the show. So I would say that is why, like it, it's one of my favorite pieces, but it's one of my favorite pieces because of how it makes me feel, you know? And at the same time, Megan, what about you? Yeah, um, a, kind of the same way. Like it's just, just, it's just so powerful emotionally. And I think that's, and just how present it is, mm -hmm. is really the thing that, that draws me to the story every time I hear it. I feel so much in the moment and in the present that it's, it's almost like the character in the story. It's a story that can't be ignored. You know, well, like I feel like you have to be present with what, what you think. Totally. It's also written that way. Like a lot of times that stories are written in, uh, how do you say past tense or whatever, but this mm -hmm. is present tense. Like every moment is the now. So when you listen, like you, you really don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if the character is going to survive because the past tense usually kind of makes you have like a subliminal thought that this is a, a retold story. Yeah. yeah, and you don't have that security with this. So I thought that was a brilliant move from Carrie as well. Oh, ab absolutely. I mean, it was a, a definitely the right choice to choose to write this in the present tense. And I think, uh, it, it just really goes to show that like Carrie has such control over this story when you're writing. Like I feel, I feel like I can be emotionally present with this story because I trust the writer. Yeah. And I trust that this writer knows what she's doing and she's taking me on this journey. And even though it's making me uncomfortable, I, I trust her because I understand that she's made these decisions for a reason. It's a very and, interesting perspective too, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Ab absolutely. And um, just like taking us through like moment by moment by that. Um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments is in the the police station moment. Like every time I hear it. And, and Megan, I thought you might not jump today because you could see the little timer go up, but you still jumped. I just, I mean, you can't hear that and not jump. Um, anyway, so welcome back, Carrie. Hello. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for reading that wonderful story. Before we get into the interview, I want to um, let everybody know a little bit about you. So Carrie is um, an aspiring writer who is currently completing her MFA in screenwriting at CSUN. Having spent much of her childhood and all of her adult life pursuing acting, Carrie has found a love of stories and the characters that create them. She loves to travel and was lucky enough to briefly study martial arts in Northern China. Currently, she's working on multiple films and television projects and happily receives loads of encouragement from her dog, Mishka, in the form of facelifts, which I love. 
Uh, Carrie is thrilled to be able to share her story, The Awakening, on Nobody Reads Short Stories. So welcome, Carrie. Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. This is awesome. I love your show. It's very fun. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for a, thank you for a great read. And thank you for a- It was a great uh, bringing, read. That was a wonderful read, Carrie. Bringing all of your, all of the emotion and in, in your, I can tell you've been acting for quite some time and have good command of that when you're reading those stories. So I was, that was so great. Um, so Jeremy, you want to start us off? Yeah, I, I usually we ask the inspiration, but I kind of want to throw a curveball because it was really something that was on my mind. What was the hardest part to write? Um, there's so many parts that must have been really difficult. Yeah. Um, for me, I think the hardest part, I think it's twofold. Um, so I am a survivor. Um, so just the idea of putting yourself in that position kind of mentally, emotionally in a lot of ways is very difficult. Um, but also like very cathartic, right? Like there's a reason that I was drawn to write this, but then for me, um, the worst part and probably I presume the worst part for a lot of readers is the moment when she realizes if she wants to get the gun, she has to start moving. Um, cause just the idea of being in such an awful situation and like your only defense is basically to give them what they want to a certain extent and like just how awful that is. But that's, you know, I mean, when, when writing, they often say, you know, what's the worst situation that you could put your character in and, and it kind of just made sense. I don't know. It wasn't something I thought about writing beforehand, but in the moment writing it, I was like, well, what would you do? How do you d get that gun? You know, and she's obviously already been outstrengthed. So what are the options? Did you, know? you, did you know the character while you were writing it or did you get to know her as this happened? I'm sure both ways it was difficult putting your character in that situation. Yeah, I, I would say I got to know her while I was writing it more. Like I wanted, like I had like an idea of her. Like I had an idea of this girl who's going to become this really strong person after this event. And basically, hopefully one day I'll write the novel version of this and this launches her into a longer journey where she basically goes back and gets vengeance on the first person who ever assaulted her, you know, in the form of a confrontation, whatever that will be. It doesn't necessarily mean he'll be uh, murdered. But so I had kind of a stick figure outline. And then as I wrote her, she became much more clear and her thoughts kind of took over my head a bit more than I'd like sometimes probably. <laughs> yeah, I loved, I love that you mentioned the that moment where she realizes, you know, she. She has to, um, you know, bring this guy to pleasure in yeah. order to save herself. And and I I thought that was such a powerful moment, um, just because, you know, women. I, I just I just feel like um, you know women have to so often use things that bring us pleasure to in order to like as weapons. Yeah. And uh, so I I just I had never really seen sex used in, in exactly that kind of way in, in such a visceral, emotional, like just such a visceral, physical way before. 
that that just made such an impact on me. And I thought you handled it so well. I mean, I, I just feel like I just feel like there's so many ways that that could have gone wrong. And, and yeah. it just it just came off as like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what needs to happen. And that's exactly how it needs to be said. And so, um, I, you know, kudos to you for, for uh, accomplishing that because it, it really is a, such a powerful moment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely not going to be a moment for everyone. This is not a short story for everyone. Right. No, no. And we, and we definitely, we definitely recognize that. Um, another moment that really sparked for me, this, this reading was, um, or, or popped for me a little bit was, was her, her hearing her talking to him saying you, mm. and then correcting herself and saying him. And I just really loved that. She is instinctually kind of talking to him because she, she feels connected to him and she's purposefully separating them herself from him, but like can't always do it. And I just loved that, that, that process of her, like not falling into this, like I imagine being sort of like a darker side of, Oh, I have to be connected to my pain in this way. And then, and then say, no, I don't want to be. And so I guess I, it made me think when you were talking about a longer story, like, Oh, I could definitely see that coming, coming back around. Um, It's, it's also absolutely disgusting, you know, like he was inside her, he assaulted her. And even when it's over, he is in a sense raping her because this is, she, she has not chosen to have him in her, memory you know like so she she's stuck with him you know even yeah. though she killed him and so i agree it's it's really it's really messed up but like really sincere i can see someone having to deal with it that way yeah i think i think that aspect of it is very important for me because i think um i think like when we think of assault victims what we think of is the physical moment and the pain that happens then and that's awful, but I think a lot of times what happens is the lasting trauma that follows someone for who knows however long and hopefully it helped and hopefully it doesn't last that long, but like that will be with you forever. And like, you can't, you can't get rid of that. I imagine completely. I mean, I hope, hope some people do, but you know, like that idea that someone is forever able to creep into your space when you don't want, and I mean, obviously other people can do it too, but but yeah, that like, I don't know, when someone does something that takes that much power from you, mm-hmm. it's impossible to not have them resurface whether you want them to or not. Yeah. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what um, what was the moment that sort of inspired you to actually mm-hmm. write this story? It's a good question. It's so, writing it i mean i really just kind of sat down and wanted to write something anything and just stop worrying about what i was writing and kind of stop censoring myself mm-hmm. and so when i decided to stop censoring myself this kind of came up and something that i don't know i don't know a lot of my friends or a lot of girls i know have always had the thought of like even if they haven't been victims of assault have had that thought of like if this comes up how far will I go to stop it? Like, am I willing to fight? And and mm. most of these situations don't involve a gun. Most of these situations involve someone, you know, all of these horrible things, mm. but there's still that question of like, you know, would I be willing to fight to the death? And I think everybody has a different version of that. And then it's kind of like, 
if you would, or you think you would, obviously no one knows what they would do in that moment. Like, what does that look like? Or what could it look like? Or, yeah. And so it was kind of just, I guess, letting myself be untethered. And then as, I don't know, yeah, as dark as I wanted to be, I guess. But yeah. So, so you knew, did you know the end point? Like where, where it was going? Oh, okay. So you were no. totally untethered. You were just following along with the what yeah. if. Yeah. I mean, I, to be like, I, I would say I didn't know for sure, but I figured she would, I want to say win in some way, but I wouldn't have actually, if I had planned it out, I think I would have probably tried to not have her get raped at all. You know, I would have tried to have it end before that and like had her succeed from the beginning. Cause that's, that's, this is like, that's the story I w would like to happen. And this is kind of the twisted fantasy of when it gets as bad as it possibly gets, how can you salvage something in mm. some awful way? That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I love that. And I love this concept of writing and being untethered because that's, and, and this idea of, and I think I'm going to probably use that in my own thoughts moving forward because mm. I, I struggle with that of just like writing and not censoring myself and not like self editing as I'm writing. Yeah. And when you, when you aren't, when you are able to be untethered and you are able to just be in the moment of, of that creation, that's when the magic happens. You know, that's when something really, really beautiful happens. Like, like what you've done here. And I often have often wondered like about writers, you know, like, like Ernest Hemingway, who was like this massive alcoholic and yet was, you know, they, you know, I have my own issues with Ernest Hemingway, but, um, <laughs> you know, he has written some, some wonderful books. And, and, and so I just think like, God, how did he do that? But also being so um, inebriated. And, and then I began to think like, did that what he needed to do in order to get to that place of untetheredness, like to mm. get to the place where he could kind of just let himself write. And I, and I often wondered about that. Um, like, I really do feel like that, that magic is, or that point of just letting go and being in the moment with whatever the muse is giving you, it can be really magical and cathartic and can lead you in places that you didn't even know you could go. Speaking yeah. of, uh, Carrie, how, how did this lead you to a moment that you didn't know it could go from what Megan just said? Oh, um, it's interesting. I think, I mean, like I mentioned before, the her moving during it was really the big one. And then like small, small things, like um, when I got notes, like some feedback from different people, things like the hummingbird wings, hmm. like someone was saying, well, she shoots this gun, but then there's no, there's no aftermath from that. And if you shoot a gun, especially in an alley, like even if you shoot a gun in an open space, there's gonna be a sound and so I was like, well, what is that? And like, what's the filling and how, how then can that become like that ringing in your ears? How can that become something positive, you know? Cool. And it's something cool. that can ha haunt her for a long time. Yeah. So like that, I think was completely unexpected. And honestly, like if I hadn't gotten that note, I, I don't know if I ever would have gotten to that. And I really like that image because it's like this freeing thing, but it comes from this awfulness. Yeah. That's wonderful. I love that you mentioned that you were still writing it like after it was done and you've incorporated notes and it's, I mean, that's one of my favorite moments is the hummingbird moments. It's, it's like pretty in a 
place that you don't really want anything to be pretty, you know? Yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. Like every time the hummingbird thing comes up, I feel a little like jolt of like, how should I feel about this? Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's such chaos and darkness happening and then wait, there's hummingbirds and, 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 but I think it's, it's a, a jarring in a, in a very, in a way that fits very totally. well within the story. Um, so yeah. Well, Carrie, um, this was Carrie. so good. Thank you for yeah. just like sitting and being so open and honest in the piece, but also in this interview. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys so much for having me. I love this. This is awesome. I can't wait to see what all you guys do. It's really cool. Oh, well, thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you again. Uh, if you listeners would like to learn more about Carrie's work, you can visit her website. It's CarrieNewell.com. And you can also find her at um, Instagram and Twitter under the handle the Carrie Newell. That's N-E-W-E-L-L. Thank you again, Carrie. Awesome. Carrie, Thank you killed it. Thank you. All right. That one was so good. I loved it. She, no. she really did a great job. She did. She did. Absolutely. I was so, I was so pleased with how that went and pleased for her, for sure. Um, all, right. all right, now it's everybody. time to do the thing. You know our drills. So if you haven't already, <laughs> please go to YouTube, uh, like the stories that you like, leave us a message, let us know what you thought of Carrie's story. If you have any um, yes. words that you would like to send to Carrie, please uh, feel free to leave comments. We'll make sure that she sees them. Totally. If you have any questions, et cetera, we'll pass them along. Um, we are uh, trying to reach 100 subscribers on YouTube for season two. So if you haven't already, please go to our to YouTube channel, um, like and subscribe. There's a little bell next to the subscribe button. And if you sign up for notifications every time we have a new episode, you will get a notification so that and, you never miss a story. And listen, we know that you're hearing us because last time we made it a little funny and we said, y'all, we really need you, seriously. And we got more subscribers than we ever did. We're getting close. So if you're one of those people that has been watching our show and you haven't subscribed, do it, please. Yeah, please do. We do. We, of course we need you. We need you we to need watch so the bad. show, to listen to the show, um, to visit Spotify and iTunes and Stitcher and uh, Amazon Music and download those apps and download our episodes uh, because we want you guys to have access to our stories at any time that you need a story, uh, which you can do if you uh, subscribe to any of those apps. Uh, and it's so easy to just download it onto your phone so you can have it um, anytime. And speaking of, we also like hearing from you. So if you have Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, guess what? We also do. Woohoo! Yeah. Like so, creeper. I, I should yeah, not move my eyebrows. Uh, a little bit, yeah. So I'll try to tone it down a little bit. And it's friendly. We're friendly on social media. So if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, please use the <laughs> please use the hashtag NRSS podcast. Uh, and you can find us at Nobody Read Short Stories Facebook and Instagram. If you like merch, we have not just pillows. Megan, what else do we have? I'm showing have the pillow right now. We have everything that your little hearts could desire in NRS merchandise. We have fanny packs, we have socks, we have leggings, we have t-shirts. The holidays are coming up. Uh, we know that 
you want to buy all of our merch for all your friends and family, whether you like them or not. Uh, <laughs> orange and orange and purple are Lakers colors. Hey, listen, if you don't like them and they happen not to like purple or orange, you know what you can get. That's right. So see, it's a win-win whether you like the person or not. So visit our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com and check out our merchandise. Any money that we make above our overhead, our limited overhead, we are donating to literacy programs. Uh, so uh, this is not a moneymaker for us. This is a way it's to not. get more people to read short stories and to get um, just more people to read in general. Megan, don't you have a website? I do have a website. Oh my God, what is the website name? Let me okay, look this I'm gonna up. Tell you, so you, can, you can look it up right now. It's okay. meganamorrison.com. Uh, if you sign up for notifications, uh, you'll get a little notification um, every time I update my projects list. And I think Jeremy has a website as well. Well, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. And if you subscribe to me, you get notifications like Megan. And every week I also release a micro story, all genres, like 100 words or less to start your week. Uh, they're really great. You guys really don't want to miss um, getting his micro stories. They are very satisfying. We have and one more thing and I always forget it. Megan, what is that one more thing we have to do? What is the one more thing that we have to do? Um, oh, oh, next week. <laughs> next week, we have another amazing writer next week. You've actually seen slash maybe just heard him on the show twice, uh, John Selasny. He's a wonderful actor and he happens to also be a wonderful writer. And next week you have the opportunity to see him do both. Yeah, I'm so delighted to have John on the show next week. He is reading his very personal story, How Admiral Bajat Defeated the Soviet Navy. And uh, you do not want to miss this story. He's, you don't. It's going to be amazing. So please come back and join us next week. Uh, we can't wait. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories. Funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories